welcome to another episode of SLT Time. Today, Veronica and I are joined by Dr. Reem Hamis Dakwar, who is an Associate Professor and Chair of Communication Sciences and Disorders in the Department at Adelphi University in New York. She earned her PhD from Teachers College, Columbia University, and is a certified speech and language pathologist. She teaches courses on language development, speech language services for culturally and linguistic diverse populations and neuroscience and communication disorders. She's also the director of Neurophysiology and Speech and Language Pathology Lab, where she conducts clinically relevant studies relating to typical and atypical language development. Her area of expertise focuses on the neurocognitive representations of the two language varieties in Arabic diglossia, clinical speech pathology assessment and intervention within the sociolinguistic situation of Arabic diglossia in particular and for individuals from diverse populations. Um, in today's episode we discuss a variety of topics. Please do share your thoughts and comments. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and enjoy the episode. Hello, uh, Dr. Reem. It's great to have you here with us today. Um, Dr. Reem um, has been part and completed um, research on speech and language therapy um, within the Arab community. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about your research journey? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be uh, joining you and meeting you before. I just uh, want to thank you for being active and for being leaders in uh, bringing topics that are of interest for BIPAC uh, uh, speech language pathologists and audiologists and uh, for taking that leadership role. Uh, I really appreciate that. Um, I was trained as a speech language pathologist. I, I was born in Nazareth and I was trained uh, as a speech language pathologist at Tel Aviv University. And later on, I got the Fulbright scholarship to do my PhD at Teachers College. So all my research was really focused on language development in Arabic speaking children and later in adults with aphasia. Um, and just to give you a background, I came into a, a research arena that is basically, there's almost nothing there. There's no tools to use that you know can be fitting for research studies to be published and for you to say, I have the valid tools to assess you know, the specific question. And then we are talking about a population that doesn't, is not very familiar with speech language pathology and what we do. And when you come to the US, there's also this very uh, 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 distrust of uh, uh, service providers that you know, are coming into uh, racialized communities because many times these uh, uh, services are more connected with exclusion of kids and sometimes disconnecting kids from their parents. So there's also this very uh, uh, hardship in connecting with communities to be part of studies that you're doing. But I think what's really important for me to talk about is the colonized mindset that I had throughout my studies acquired and I had to work on myself to be able to realize that I needed to make my own self journey of decolonization to free my questioning from the framework of what is the norm for the specific community that I'm working on. So I'm working with. Uh, so my focus of research was on diglossia. Diglossia is a, is a sociolinguistic situation where you have two language varieties that coexist in complementary uh, functional distribution. Uh, it exists in several languages and several speech communities. However, it's always presented as if it's something that is ethnic, something that is a little bit different when it's actually found in, in many communities in the West and in the East. In Arabic, diglossia is exhibited through the existence of the spoken dialect that children usually are exposed to in daily communication and they acquired it naturally without really like, you know, implicitly. Yeah. And then you have what we call the standard Arabic, which is the formal Arabic that is more connected with reading and writing and formal communication. And usually it, to, to, to learn standard Arabic, you need to access formal education to be able to uh, be proficient in standard Arabic. Yeah. Um, 
So at the beginning, my research was focused on language development in children, because as a speech language pathologist, there was a lack of milestones and basic knowledge about what to expect from children that uh, are Arabic speakers. Uh, you finish you know, your BA and your master's, and then you go to the field and you're like, what do I have? What tools do I have to help me make a clinical decision that is actually sound clinical decision? And you're like at last, there's almost nothing. And then you, know, you start looking for what's in Hebrew and you start you know, uh, rationalizing that you can use this because Hebrew and Arabic are very similar, or you start looking for something that is found in the PLS and you start using the PLS when it's like, you know, that's not good practice. So really, I think you know, speech language pathologists that come from uh, BIPOC background, we really are challenged every day because with all our training, we're really not trained to be able to do uh, the work that we need to be doing for the population that we're serving. Mm -hmm. Any case, so I started working on uh, ex examining uh, subject, verb, object, and verb, object, uh, and uh, subject, verb, object, and verb, subject, object production in uh, children from zero to three years old. And what I wanted to do is more to do a study that is not only providing descriptive milestones about how language develops in Arabic, but for Arabic to be part of the universal discussion of language acquisition. And it was more to contribute to theoretical debates about movements uh, in syntactic uh, structure and syntactic processing and language development, which was at that point a very hot debate. And it was really great study. I really enjoyed it. I learned from the best linguist in the field. I connected with linguists, which was, you know, an interprofessional uh, experience for me that I learned a lot from it. And I just, my collaborations with linguists just grew uh, bigger and stronger from that time. And I think that was the best uh, out of this uh, study. But later on, I, you know, I started realizing that I really focused only on spoken Arabic and that we have to start realizing that in Arabic speaking communities that exhibit diglossia, children are exposed not only to spoken dialect, they're exposed on also to standard Arabic at different levels, uh, at different, uh, you know, in different ages, there's different levels of expectations from children in terms of what they know for, about standard Arabic. And I also started realizing that, you know, knowing spoken Arabic by itself is not gonna give you the full linguistic tools that you need to be a competent Arabic speaker. And this I learned more from looking at my kids here because we moved to the US and my kids have access to the spoken Arabic through uh, the home environment, but they didn't have access to standard Arabic. And this is when I started seeing, oh, they do speak Arabic, but there's a lot of the Arabic that we use in daily communication that is mainly based from access to standard Arabic that they didn't have and that they don't have the full complete um, um, profile of an Arabic speaker. So I think I started more and more realizing how biased I was in my focus on spoken Arabic and how the frameworks of studies that I was trained, and I'm, you know, I'm thankful for all the training that I got, but at the same time, it did instill in me some norms that don't fit the norms of Arabic speakers. And in a way, it made all my contributions a little bit limited because they're really just trying to fit uh, something into a body that is a little bit larger than that. There's more to it that we have in the yeah. study. I think um, it's very interesting, the research that you've been doing. And I've also thought a lot about it myself, actually, because I read a research paper, um, I think it was by Leslie Rascola, um, 2017, she did a paper on um, comparing Polish toddlers and English toddlers. Um, so their vocabulary, the amount of vocabulary they have at age two. And she found that Polish toddlers actually have um, less vocabulary than English toddlers do at age two. And that made me think, you know, when we are working with bilingual children, um, we cannot just compare them to the English language acquisition norms. You know, um, if a Polish toddler is saying less words, you know, maybe that's actually normal in a Polish environment, you know. And if we don't know that ourselves, how are we going to be able to say whether that child has a delay or not? So I think this is a really serious issue um, 
and I don't personally know where to go to get that information from. You know, I don't, I haven't come across any um, like English materials that will tell me like what Polish language acquisition is like. Um, so, you know, it's, and there's so many different languages, isn't there? There's so many different, um, you know, and each of them are gonna have different stages of acquisition. So, I mean, it's such a big, um, it's such a big field, isn't it? Like, where do we even start? Could you give um, us some advice maybe on that? Well, I, I have two points to add. One, you're raising a very, very important point, the standardization and that idea that we are basically determining what's normal and what's normal based on usually one milestone. Even if, even if we go and do now the study examining the number of words in typically developing children who come from different backgrounds, that's not even enough because what we need is to even more understand the parenting style in different communities, the different expectations. What we see here is exactly, I think, a very uh, historically problematic um, experience and practice that is very much uh, connected with speech language pathology that we have to reconcile with. We have to reconcile with the fact that a lot of our work was basically evaluation of students based on standardized assessments that set what is to be norm and what is not to be considered a norm, and then to divide these children based on these set up norms, when we actually are more saying only one is good and the other one is not good. Only one fits the general education and the other one doesn't fit the general education. And we have a lot of literature talking about the overrepresentation of children of color in um, a special education. I'm not very familiar in the, uh, the UK, but I'm, I'm expecting that the same pattern is found there, that you know many of the children are basically uh, judged because of the number of vocabulary, which is very much correlated with socioeconomic status. Research has been uh, shown that by half, that it's really a correlation of socioeconomic status. And the other thing that I keep thinking about, okay, maybe they have less words, but maybe they're doing other things that haven't been assessed, that they are better at their strengths and weaknesses that are interacting with each other. The problem is that when we're building all our tests based on how children are raised in one community, like the US, where it's mainly individually based, it's mainly parent and child interaction. They don't have like us in Arabic communities where I used to play in the Hara, in the neighborhood with all of my cousins and with all of the neighbors and a lot of my social linguistic interactions were not with my mother telling me names of things, but it was with my cousins and with all of my neighbors. And I learned a lot of other things. Maybe I didn't learn the word for the exact like name for, uh, I don't know, ma Mandarin or, you know, uh, whatever, like, you know, my mother was talking about or was cooking, but I had other opportunities, other contexts where other things have developed. The question is, are our standardized tests that are setting the norms, are they setting the norms based on outcomes that fit one group and we are imposing these norms on another group and we're missing a lot of strength that should be assessed to actually be able to identify the children that need the support. Now, what to do? I think, um, as I said, I think we're always challenged and I think you know, to be a BIPOC uh, researcher or a BIPOC uh, uh, clinician, means that our job is much more complex, much more challenging, and that we, we have to dig deeper to be able to do our work. Research is showing that you know, there's a lot of benefit from asking parents uh, to ask parents, how does this child language receptively or expressively is compared to other children of his age within your community? And research is showing that you know, uh, most likely parents are very reliable and their uh, judgment is really reliable to like to think about, but uh, to take it uh, as a as a marker. Uh, but at the same time, there's not much research that has been done on that. Like we do have to have the evidence to support what we assume that is going to be correct. That parents can help you. The other thing is that you're going to have to do a little bit much more work uh, observing the child in his or her natural environment, and uh, in their natural environment and to see them interacting with other children and not to only focus on the settings that we are used to use for evaluating children. We're used to evaluate children in adult child interaction. Now, if you think about it, 
in Western uh, middle-class white families. Children are used to have adult white interactions. Children are used during, you know, now they had the what they call Thanksgiving. And in Thanksgiving, it's a practice that, you know, everybody sits around the table and they play a game. I didn't have this as a child who was an Arabic rare child. I didn't have these interactions playing, you know, around the table with an adult. I did have a lot of these interactions playing with my cousins at the bottom of the building around like, you know, uh, a game, but not with an adult. So there's a lot of questions here. Like, is the child that is coming to play with an adult to be assessed for language really going to show the potential of language skills that they have, knowing that they didn't have much opportunities to be in these kind of interactions? Yeah, I think you bring up a very, very good point there because, you know, we spend so much time um, talking about parent-child interaction and a lot of therapy with young children will focus on parent-child interaction. But if the parent is not interacting with the child in that way, in the standard westernized way, then, you know, they might not engage with that therapy. That therapy is just not going to work for them. So we need to come up with different ways of helping the parent to help the child. And we need to look at, you know, how children normally interact in their cultural environments and their, you know, so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting, but, you know, I don't know very many therapists who will kind of think about it in this way. And, you know, we're not taught about this kind of thing at university, for example. So, and, you know, there is not that much research on it. Like you said, I've been trying to research language socialization recently, and I haven't come across that much, to be honest. So there is like a really big gap in our, in our you know, literature, really, that needs to be filled somehow. But um, yeah, it's, it's difficult, especially when, you know, you have all of these therapists who are, you know, monolingual, white, you know, and they probably haven't thought about another kind of way of interaction before because they haven't been in that experience themselves they haven't been around people maybe who are interacting in a different way um so yeah it's it is a very big issue I think yeah and I love what you said in that way that there's one way but there's so many other ways and what we need is to open our minds and hearts and and eyes to see the truth on what ways are there for different children that they have been interacting so that we can uh, uh, do the work with social justice in mind, not judge the kids based on a system that is imposing one way over others' ways, uh, other ways. And, you know, the one thing that you also said is that we are not trained. I'm not trained as, you know, a researcher, and it took me a long time and a lot of self-work to get to that place and I'm still in a continuum. I'm sure there's a lot of things that I'm doing that are still, you know, within the colonized frame set that, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, I'm freed, but maybe I'm still not freed in many, many of the methodology that I'm using and the questions that I'm asking. Uh, and that's why I think we need to ask more for the organizations like ASHA and the Royal um, uh, you know, the organization uh, of the professionals in the US, in the UK, to take more responsibility, knowing that, you know, this is um, a profession that is predominantly white, knowing that we have a population that is growing in its diversity and, and, and population that is diverse, knowing that, you know, being racially and linguistically minoritized, specifically in places like the US and the UK, have other impact on parents and parents' engagement in therapy and in assessment, and knowing the important role of parents' involvement in the success of language uh, intervention, and knowing that we don't have enough resources and that even the ones that are available many times are just colonized in that sense that they are bringing evidence to perpetuate that kind of standardization that is excluding kids that have normal, typical uh, development and treat them as if they're, dif you know, that their difference is a disorder in that sense. Knowing all of this, I think it is the duty of our professional organization to take more proactive role and it's the duty of our academic programs to be more proactive and at a large scale to make sure that all of our clinicians 
BIPOC and non-BIPOC are aware of the bias that is in, within our tools, the bias within the way we practice, so that they can start minimizing these kind of unequal uh, practices that we're providing to one kid just based on what their background is, because that's not okay, that's not fair, uh, and that's not ethical. Yeah, I think raised so many good points I think just thinking about some of the assessments that I've done with bilingual children and even you know um, Arabic speaking um, bilingual children um, it is usually sort of thinking about what I would do in English and then trying to sort of change that into an Arabic assessment um, and I guess even with the interaction as well, I didn't really consider, even though I had the same experiences as well as a younger child where you wouldn't necessarily interact with adults, the adults would be sitting at a table and I'd probably be sitting in the smaller table as a child interacting with my siblings or my cousins, but sort of still expecting a child in a, in a clinic setting or in a classroom setting to be just as open with me um, as an adult. So yeah, definitely something that I'll try to keep in mind. Um, but I think it's I think it's really interesting, and we spoke about this a lot previously, the sort of speech and language profession worldwide, and that it's not representative of the children that we work with. And and I think you made a really good point in terms of even someone that's non-white, I have still come out of that system. So I still carry some of those um, sort of prejudice, I guess, um, with me in my work. Um, and then the other thing when I was reading um, one of your papers that I thought was really interesting was um, research on um, heritage speakers. So someone like me that sort of grew up speaking Arabic um, as a younger child, but and then acquiring English as a second language, but English has now become my dominant language and how that might affect a child that um, might be speaking their home language at home. Um, and then sort of moving on to English at school. And it makes me think of my niece, for example, who's exposed to some Arabic, but actually her Arabic isn't that strong. And that's because um, sort of thinking about her language acquisition and children like her and whether it would be sort of what we would expect as someone learning a different language. And I was talking to my sister about this actually, and I was saying how, um, like super interesting that it doesn't necessarily follow the same um, sort of route. Um, I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about that because I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna talk about this, but before I wanna add to your point about sure. training that you know we have to admit as professionals and as a collective, like you were talking about your personal experience, I was talking about my personal experience. And we're all struggling personally to do the right thing. But what we need to start realizing is that at this point, there's a need for a collective movement and for a collective transformation. It's not gonna work for anyone, for the profession itself to, be, to keep being relevant and to keep being you know, a profession that provides really uh, uh, equally uh, and uh, uh, culturally responsive uh, practices it won't work if it's left for each individual to find a solution for what to do and how to assess and treat our children that come from culturally and linguistically diverse population uh, in a way that is, is responsive to their uh, background and to their needs. It has to be a collective at this point. And we have to recognize that the inequality in the way that we're treating knowledge um, and that it has consequences and consequences in the way we treat and evaluate the children that, and the individuals that we're working with. And if we're not going to start with this point as a collective to admit that we have to change the way we review papers when it comes to culturally and linguistically diverse population, the EBP practice, which is globally like, you know, becoming the uh, gold, you know, the gold um, um, a framework that everybody like uh, refers to really uh, idealizes mainly quantitative research. But when it comes to culturally and linguistically diverse population, we need more qualitative research to understand more the social interactions, to understand more the connections between power, language, and language practices. There's a lot of questions that we'll not be able to learn about and to understand 
unless we tap into qualitative research. However, at this point, qualitative research is really, you, you, rarely, you rarely see it in, in our profession. You rarely see PhD trainees getting trained in qualitative research. If you look at research that has been published in the field, you see there's no one uh, specific journal that is focused on culturally and linguistically responsive practice. You see, you know, on swallowing, you see special issues on culturally linguistically diverse population, but you never see these kind of consistent questioning and consistent inquiry that is focused on this topic, even though if there's any topic that needs a little bit more push, a little bit more intensity, it's this topic because we're all admitting that there's a lack of studies. So how come we're only getting these special topics, special volumes, and never getting these kind of journals that are consistently producing the knowledge that is in need and is enabling us to develop that knowledge and to evolve so that we can change the practice itself. It's, it's a process and it starts with the knowledge. Knowledge is power and knowledge informs everything that we do. So I just yeah, I guess it's that. kind of um, it's kind of comes back to that systematic racism, doesn't it? You yes. know, yes, people thank are you. <laughs> people are not do not think that this is an important issue you know and that is due to the systematic racism within society within our culture and until people understand that it the importance of it until some of that systematic racism gets broken down things are not going to change yeah and and honestly you know all the studies that are published they talk about that the main way to perpetuate racism is by considering it that it's not that important or that you know the system is getting fixed by adding more procedure or adding more like condition or adding one more sentence, just be mindful for race and blah, 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 blah. And they put everything else as if race just another like thing that is not, you know, by itself needs the attention of our profession. Knowing at least, you know, in the US, we're talking about 92% of speech language pathologists are white middle class females. And we're talking about a very divided community specifically now at this political time, uh, I'm hoping that we're going to be going towards healing and towards restructuring what's going on. But at this point, we're talking about individuals that are coming with a lot of baggage and that baggage and lived experiences are either segregated experiences with some interest in diverse you know, population, but from like a um, a, a perspective of like, oh, they're interesting, not that they are one of us. And then you have the other uh, explicitly racist, uh, uh, like lived experiences, where some do believe that, you know, uh, black parents or black dads don't know how to talk to their kids or do believe that, you know, Arabs smell, I don't know, like, you know, all of these stereotypes, it's going to impact the way they are going to be treating my kid if he needed therapy as an Arab, it's going to be impacting the way they make a judgment based on assessment results, because they're not going to do the extra work and try to figure out if the deletion of the S in the present uh, tense marker is part of the American Af African American English uh, uh, linguistic system, intentionally or non-intentionally. And for me, it doesn't matter anymore. The non-intentional is the one that is perpetuating racism. It's these kind of practices that we're used to do without thinking about it and trying to question, is this impacted by the pervasive racist practices and procedures and uh, policies that we're all, we're all immersed in it. We're all in a way are part of the system and participating in the system, unless we take ourselves out, which nobody can take themselves out. We're all part of this community. We're all living in this community. So I still believe that there's a huge important role that the professional associations and the academic programs have to take at a large scale to put uh, systemic racism as uh, an important topic that needs to be addressed for our profession to be relevant uh, for future practices and to be ethical and to be uh, professional. Uh, yeah, I guess... Um... You know, the issue is because there is such a large majority white monolingual, um, you know, the majority of the profession is like that. So I don't think these issues kind of stand out to them. You know, they might not have considered what it's like to be a bilingual before. So they're not going to think it's important to, you know, teach about bilingualism at university or put, you know, cultural competency, you know, as part of our competency frameworks I think that's one of the things that we've 
been discussing recently how, you know, we have when we are newly qualified, we have to fulfill all of these competencies, but there isn't a specific cultural competency that we have to do. And people just assume that you can do it, or maybe they just um, don't even think about it at all. But it is really important to be able to do this. And I think the fact that there's the, the majority is, you know, white monolingual, and they're just, and maybe the leadership as well is, is similar. Um, so we're not getting those people pushing these policies and pushing this training and everything from the top. And so it's not filtering down into like the universities and things and people yeah. are just not learning um, the amount that they need to about these topics. Yeah, yeah but, but the way I look at it is that it's our professional membership that should be the reason for us to see how important it is. It's not whether I'm an Arab or you're, you know, uh, Polish or you're Muslim or you're white, but are you a speech pathologist? And if you are a speech pathologist, then the principles of being a speech pathologist that all the focus is centered on the client that you're working with and the family that you're engaged with and on making sure that you're facilitating communication as a human right. If this is the core principle of what does it mean to be a speech language pathologist, then it doesn't matter if you're white, it doesn't matter if you're black, it doesn't matter if you're an Arab to realize that systemic racism is blocking our profession from evolving to, in the right direction and from serving the, the people that we are working with um, equally. And I'm hoping that we are moving towards that position because I do see a lot of new students speaking out. I do see a lot of faculty and departments taking more uh, um, initiatives. So I do have a little bit hope lately. Always helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, just, I just wanted to add something because yeah. last time I spoke to you, you mentioned, you said something to me that really, again, really sort of hit me. And it was just being aware that we've sort of grown up in that embedded ra racism and how it affected our work and judgment. And I think being aware of it is just not enough anymore. Everyone is aware that it's happening. It's what we're we going to do about it. And the other thing um, that I picked up that I thought of as well was now we're thinking about speech and language therapy and a lot of the talk that we're having around for example bilingualism is yes I'm going to use a translator for example and I'm going to work with a translator and it seems like that's the thing that will tick the box when actually that's not enough um, like working with for example um, and this was interesting as well when I was reading your papers thinking for example in just Arabic and the different dialects that there are and usually the translator that we get is an Arabic speaker what does that mean so we might have a translator that can't actually speak the language that the child is speaking because we can possibly class them as two different languages and the other thing I noticed as well when I was working with translators is sometimes they would translate the child's let's say spoken utterance but whilst they are translating it it's actually really difficult for them to to translate it to us with the errors that they made um so let's say a child said something grammatically incorrect they would just naturally translate it in the correct way so again that doesn't even give us the correct information in terms of um the child's level so whether correctly or incorrectly we're diagnosing them or um, misdiagnosing them. So I think that's just something really important to note as well, thinking about how, how we're sort of doing that assessment and just taking that extra step. And, you know, like I know like working um, in the NHS, like lots of time pressure, like the amount of children that we have to see in, in such a short space of time. But is it worth seeing them then if we're not doing the work properly? We're probably not being very helpful at all if not causing more harm um so just sort of thinking about that i think those really important points that we covered last time we we can talk forever so yes for, we your, can. First point, <laughs> for your first point about, and i love it because you know usually i don't have many people that are interested in these topics as much as you both you know and you're bringing very important topic notes like you know i think you're raising a very important point that now there is more uh, large, you know, we see that there is an acknowledgement of racism in CSD and in the speech and learning and, and the speech and language and hearing uh, sciences programs. But the question is not only if we're doing action, 
I want to continue with what you said, that the question is not only acknowledging, but doing action. And now I'm going to take it a little bit further. What type of action? And who are the ones that are driving that kind of action? How these actions are determined by whom uh, it's decided that this is the action that we need to be uh, moving forward. And if we are really interested in an anti-racist kind of uh, environment for us as a professional community, then these actions have to be determined by the BIPOC people who have been working in the field. And it's not supposed to be that, you know, the majority is deciding for what's the best way to move on. There are people who are specialized, who have been working for years and years and years to enhance our culturally and linguistically responsive practice in speech language pathology and research. And these are the ones that we need to look at them from a point of strength, that they have the strength and they have the knowledge and the expertise and the experiences to be able to guide the profession in moving to the direction towards anti-racism. But if we're gonna see a situation where associations might you know, do task force or might do these kind of initiatives, but what you'll see that all these initiatives are basically uh, taking one you know, Arab or black and one white and they're determining that you know, it has to be a white and black co-chairs and that you know, it has to be in that way joined. It's already saying that you know, we're not trusting the people that are been, have been doing all of this work to take the lead. There is a need to make sure that we see the, the strength of BIPOC faculty and students who have been the pioneers in the field to actually lead the field towards the direction that they're, we're all agreeing that we don't want to be racist uh, practices in our, you know, we don't want to be taking part in racist practices and racist procedures and, and, and perpetuating racism. I think everybody doesn't want, you know, to be part of this. The question is, we're going to take action. But then the biggest question is, how are these actions determined? How involved is everybody in taking that commitment that we want to move to, towards that direction? Uh, and how much strength do we see in, in, in people of color and you know, uh, white allies that have been working on this, uh, on this uh, a change for years and years? Why aren't we seeing them adopted and uh, asked for giving their guidance by these institutions? This is really important question if they do at all like move towards that uh, direction. And with the translations, you know, it's, it's a compromise. It's just, you know, one way to uh, address uh, the outcomes of a situation that is not supposed to be that, you know, we have uh, a lack of uh, clinicians that are ready and fit to work with our uh, diverse population. And um, our training is, uh, we can't train people to speak all languages. So I do understand that we might uh, end up uh, benefiting from having a translator, but there's a lot of research that has been done on what's best practices in working with translators. And it starts with uh, explaining to them what's the work, having a translator that is familiar with what a speech pathologist does, what, what you know, kind of questions you're asking and why you're asking them. So there's a lot of training that we need to do, which means it's again, more work for us when we're working with, um, uh, to try to do the best practices. And as you said, everybody's overwhelmed and many times they uh, pick, um, Sh shortcuts. And your question is very, very uh, insightful. Are we better not giving the service than doing these assessments and uh, having a negative impact on the children and their families? I, I struggled with that question every day when I was working here in uh, speech language pathology in the United States, because I was given many times to assess children who speak Arabic who just, you know, immigrated to the U.S., and it was, it was tough, it was tough. You never, there's not much confidence in the decision about do they need therapy or do we need to give them a little bit more time? Dynamic assessment has been found to be very helpful in that sense, but then once again, you put them in dynamic assessment and um, with a person who's not quite, you know, aware of the racism. And then even when children do make the change and they do get out of, you know, these weaknesses that they were showing in communication, then, you know, other weaknesses are identified and 
they're not out of the system, even though they should be out of the system. And research is showing that at least in the US, if a child is um, enrolled in, in, in special ed, 80% uh, chance is that they're not gonna get out of it. And there's uh, an exercise that I do for my students in language development, where I give them a transcript of a child and the age, and I say, you know, you know, analyze the phonology and the syntax and, and make a final, you know, clinical decision if the child has a disorder. And I intentionally choose a child that is typically developing, but 80% of the students usually choose that this child has language delay because just by the minute that you're bringing someone and you're saying, you know, I want this person to be checked, you're already assuming there is something to be found and you're looking. And then if you add on top of it, a child who looks different, who parents act differently, who are not, you know, your like style of parenting, then definitely, even if that child is reared in a very typical like uh, environment and has very typical language attainment, you're going to find that there is a delay or is it disorder because your frameworks are not matching. Yeah, I think also um, it's quite interesting what you say about the special education, um, you know, classes, because um, we do sometimes find that children who are um, labelled as EAL um, are put with the children who have the special educational needs just purely because they're new to English. Um, but, you know, that can be really detrimental for them because, you know, they may be cognitively completely typical and then they're going to be grouped with a child who has lower cognition and they're not going to, and they're also going to be maybe grouped with children who don't have a very good um, level of English themselves because of the low cognitive ability. And then how is that going to help improve their English skills? And also, you know, they're going to be doing work that's below their level. They're going to get bored. There's a whole lot of issues, I think, that can go on there. But I think sometimes the schools, they don't understand what to do with these children and where these children fit in and how to help them. So they just, so they just automatically put them with the special educational needs children. Yeah. And I, I have to say that I personally don't believe that children should be separated, any child. I think all children should be learning together. And it's the responsibility of the system to accommodate all children to be able to learn together. I'm, I'm against uh, institutionalized special education. Um, I, I think it's exclusionary in many ways, and it shows more an issue with the society more than a, a weakness of the child or the collective children that are put in one place. I agree. <laughs> I, I love talking to you, and I can't wait for you to see what bigger projects you're going to be doing and what research hopefully you'll be doing too. Um, so you wanted me to talk about the heritage speakers. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you don't mind. <laughs> yes, we talk forever. Uh. So heritage speakers um, usually are, you know, like uh, minority speakers or racialized, racially minoritized uh, populations in the US or the UK, where the language of the majority basically takes over once children uh, go start school. So usually what you find in these cases that children, like my children, uh, when they are first born, they are exposed to the language of the minority, that is the language of the family, and they acquire it naturally. And then once they go to school, uh, somehow the intensity of their exposure to their language, to their home language starts decreasing. And what we start finding is that parents even um, uh, start speaking in English with their children. Children start responding in English to their parents and the exposure and the use of the language of the majority uh, starts uh, going down. So compared to monolingual situation where you have, you know, children are from day zero, they're exposed to English or Arabic or, you know, whatever language. And that, you know, the exposure just keeps growing and their language proficiency keep growing. When you have a bilingual, typical bilingual situation, you have two languages that are either exposed, uh, the child is exposed to from day one, and they're just, you know, growing together in terms of exposure and proficiency. And then you have the sequential uh, bilingualism where they have the first language developing, and then at one point, the second language is added, and, you know, they both keep growing in a way. But what you see in heritage speakers is uh, what, you know, is referred to as um, 
uh, language attrition, uh, of which you know the first language starts getting uh, uh, like the, the proficiency in the first language uh, increases. But then once the child is introduced to the language of the majority, the exposure and use of the first language decreases. And what you'll see is that there's uh, either loss of the language or incomplete acquisition of the first language. Now, for us as speech language pathologists, this is very important. One, uh, we don't see enough use of the term heritage speakers in uh, our field, which I think it's uh, just symptomatic of the fact that in our field, we're very uh, micro-focused. We're focused on the individual and the family, and we don't see the society and the social impact. And heritage speakers is about society, and it's about social uh, interactions and how different collective groups are treated uh, linguistically and how their linguistic practices are different based on the society powers. Uh, so it's not surprising that you rarely see heritage speakers in the literature in our field. But then what you, when you think about it, and um, is that you know the, the best practices in working with bilinguals and these children are sometimes either treated as monolinguals because once you know they start school, they, some of them lose their Arabic or their you know, Spanish or their Russian, and they become only predominantly English speakers, and they become treated as if they are monolingual English speakers. And when you look at the standardized assessment like SELF and the PLS, you'll see that the standardization talks about predominantly English speakers. So what we know is that a lot of these kids are basically found in these standardized uh, measurements as if represented, but they're really like little pieces and you're really missing a lot. Like, you know, what when we started about children and how they're reared and we see one part, but we miss a lot of other things that are happening in the life of the child, we might, you know, see that these children are represented in these standardized samples standardization samples, but really we're missing what's happening with them because we're lumping them all in with the other kids. And yeah, in general, their English is very well developed. And a lot of the research in linguistics also focused on their loss of the first language and their incomplete acquisition of the first language. But then if you think about it as a clinician, so if you're examining them as if they are monolingual, there are, there are still reminiscence of the fact that they are not only monolingual. There are going to be cases where their English production is going to have some transfer effect from the first language that they were exposed to, or that that shift from one language to the other impacted their ability to do well in phonological awareness tasks or more tasks that are more complex and more important for reading and writing. That whole arena is almost absent from our examination and from our investigation as clinicians. And then if you think about it, okay, so you're gonna go to best practices in how to assess bilingual children. And then what's best practices in assessing bilingual children? Assess the two languages, okay. So you're gonna assess a child who's seven years old who has been exposed to Arabic until he was three or four, and then he entered school, he got exposed to English, and then his English just flourished. And then you're gonna say, uh, I'm gonna do best practices, I'm gonna assess the child in Arabic and in English, and then you're gonna assess him in Arabic because that's his first language and he needs to have a solid foundation in his first language. But what milestones are you using? You're using the milestones that are published about an Arabic speaker who lives in Jordan or who lives in Saudi Arabia or he lives in Palestine and is exposed to only Arabic. So you're basically now imposing on him a milestone to achieve that is out of the order for him. It doesn't make any sense for you to expect yeah. from him. I think this is the issue, isn't it? Because even if we think about assessing the minority language and we get an, a minority language assessment, that assessment has been standardized probably on, you know, speakers, monolingual speakers of that minority language, right? So, mm -hmm. we, ca so we cannot even, you know, oh, assess bilingual, those bilingual children with the minority language assessments, right? <laughs> so yeah. it's actually very, very tricky to assess a bilingual child because there are not a lot of formal assessments you can use. I don't actually, I don't know of any bilingual, there probably are some bilingual, I think there's some bilingual Spanish English assessments, mm. but you know, yeah. there's so few bi formalized bilingual assessments that we really just have to do informal. I mean, we cannot 
say, you, you know, we just cannot do a kelf and say, you know, this is what the child is like, because we, we have to just use it informally, because it wouldn't be fair to impose those standards, you know, on a bilingual child. Um, but also... 100%, and I want to add two points here, yeah. because it's really important for me, for everybody to understand the roots of these practices. The roots of these practices come from the epistemologies that, you know, speech-language pathologists are, are, are you know, uh, relying on, which is the medical epistemology, which is individualized, that it's all about, you know, one individual and not seeing the macro, not seeing that that person is part of a society and that his or her or their linguistic profiles are not just individualized. It's not only one individual diversity. Being diverse is being part of a collective that is diverse together and that this is their identity. And that's really important for me to, to for all of us to start questioning. Why is uh, speech language pathology still dependent on medically based epistemologies in setting their practices. We need to start opening up for more socially based uh, ways of thinking and ways of practicing that enables us to see the, the, the benefits and the contribution of informal assessment and evaluation. I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, and also I want to go back to what you were saying about um, language attrition and language loss. And I just think it's so sad the amount of children that you see who, you know, once they got to school, they have, they're starting to lose that language. And, you know, it, it's, it's very common, isn't it? They start to speak more English, the parent, they speak English to the parent, the parent starts responding in English. And I just feel like we need to have a lot more support in place for bilingual families in terms of helping them to maintain bilingualism. And this is the kind of thing we are not seeing at all. Um, I'm not sure how much information um, a lot of speech and language therapists give to the parents in terms of maintaining bilingualism. Um, and I really don't think people understand the negative impact that losing your first language will have on you in terms of the social and emotional effects that it will have. Um, so yeah, it just makes me feel really sad. And I really wish there was more kind of people kind of pushing this whole thing about maintaining bilingualism, helping to support families. There are a couple of organizations in the UK that do this kind of thing. There was a program set up by Cambridge University called um, we Talk Multi, We Speak Multi, I think it was. Um, and they were actually training antenatal teachers to um, work with bilingual families and to give um, bilingual families, you know, that information before their child is even born. And I think that is just amazing. But I heard that they lost funding and they're not really carrying on with it at the moment. But I think there should be more of these kind of um, things set up and there should be more training in how to help the families yeah. actually meet bilingualism and think about you know family language planning and things like that definitely so there are two things that I want to share here that are relevant to uh, what Veronica was uh, talking about one is that um, for speech language pathologists my research at least with the Arabic speaking heritage speakers is trying to focus on finding the markers that can give me a sense of whether language was developing typically for these children. So in, in my uh, study with Dr. Karen Froud uh, from Teachers College at Columbia University, what we are trying to do, and uh, two of my students were part of this, Iman Hassan, what we were trying to examine is uh, in Arabic, um, heritage speakers, uh, the, uh, their production, okay, so uh, Arabic heritage speaking children and the production of their plural, dual, and um, uh, markers in English and in Arabic. So we know that in, in Arabic, we have dual markers. We say telephone for one telephone and then telephonein, by adding the N, it becomes dual, which doesn't exist in English. And we also know that in, in Arabic, we have the irregular plural for English, that the one that is called the broken plural, plural is actually acquired. Um, um, uh, we have, uh, is acquired uh, uh, at age four to five, and that we know that the feminine, uh, sing uh, feminine plural is acquired early uh, with the dual marker. And then the masculine plural uh, is acquired a little bit later at age five to seven. So what we try to examine is the, the production of plural dual in Arabic and in English in heritage speakers longitudinally. And we did also a cross-sectional study. And what we tried to examine and to find out which structures that are specifically in Arabic are specific to Arabic and are acquired early in their language development in Arabic are maintained for these heritage speakers even 
when the English takes over Arabic. So if I can find out if the dual marker is maintained or the um, feminine plural marker is maintained when they are seven and eight and their English is becoming the predominant language, then I know as speech language pathologist, if I wanna know if Arabic was developing typically, I just need to look at the dual or I just need to look at the feminine plural instead of looking at everything and figuring, oh my God, this child has a delay in his home language, in his first language, and that is a disorder. It cannot be a delay. So that's the direction that I'm going on. And it's also contributing to theoretical questions about uh, input and language development from uh, linguistic theory uh, questions and uh, framework. Uh, the other thing is the Lina Start. So the Lina Start is it's a program that uh, we developed for Arabic and Spanish speaking families. And the idea was to bring uh, Arabic and Spanish speaking families together. We have Arabic group and Spanish group. We meet uh, for 10 times. And uh, during these meetings, uh, we use a system called Lina. Uh, that enables us to record the child for 13 hours. And the system is built in a way that it works with any language. They don't analyze any word like the content, but they give you a report on the number of words that a child and uh, that the, the adult was uh, in, uh, producing with the child, the number of interactions, back and forth interactions, and the number of hours that uh, there was uh, background noise. And then uh, they get these reports based on a database uh, that will tell them like, you know, you're at the 50 percentile, you're at the 75 percentile, you're at the 25 percentile, but there's no judgment. It's for each parent to take this evidence so that it can motivate them or it can give them a sense of their like uh, social interactions with their children with language. And meanwhile, every meeting, we basically work with the parents on learning together on tips on how to increase the quality and the quantity of our talk and, and understanding the importance of early talk and understanding the benefits of bilingualism, whether it is communicative, whether it is cognitive, whether it is social, and uh, also getting them a chance to be together and to talk about their lived experiences and to support each other and to give them you know, each other's you know, ideas on how to tackle questions that they're tackling with that are really relevant to them or the way they live. And um, this is the second time we've done it. And we just finished our Lina Start uh, yesterday and it was just heartening to hear uh, the parents' comments on how they feel motivated, how they feel there's somebody that they can connect with that understands their experiences, that understands the questions that they're dealing with, just speaking in Arabic with their, you know, with other parents, um, that it was so important for them. We also give them books in Arabic that is so hard to get uh, in the United States, books that are high quality for children, and we give them that every session, and they were talking about this nonstop, how important for them was getting access to these books and how much their kids now love, you know, uh, reading these books and how they interacted in their in their like daily interactions. So one of them is cooking with her child and her child now talks about because that's a book that we gave them about, you know, a chef called Washah. And you see um, the transformative change by bringing them together. Um, the focus of the whole meeting is not to have them fit the norm, but to have them work together and for us to learn together. And honestly, it's as fulfilling for them as it is fulfilling to me. Like for me, I feel like this is the kind of work that make my work uh, meaningful and makes my life meaningful because I go there and I feel I am part of a community. And for a lot of BIPOC families, uh, BIPOC faculty members were alienated. You know, you're talking about, you know, 8% of uh, ASHA members are BIPOC. What do you think is the percentage of faculty members who are BIPOC? And how do you think, you know, the feeling going into uh, white, predominantly, predominantly white institutions and all the time um, having to deal with, you know, microaggressions, having to deal with stereotypes, having to deal with questions that are, you know, you want to be saved from. And it's constant. It's constant, like, you know, reminder that you don't fit in. Like, you know, you're somebody that 
somehow sneaked in and you know we it's a daily reminder and sometimes you know it's very explicit and sometimes it's like you know gentle like nice you know uh smiles or like you know face looks and then you'll be like mm -hmm, okay got it yeah. um so and then you know your research who's interested in your research who reads your research how hard it is to publish because as you started talking veronica like there's not an understanding why it is important so who's going to be reviewing you and who's going to be saying that this work is important or is going to give it uh, an understanding that you don't have a valid assessment to assess something so that it methodologically considered like a good study well we don't have it so should we not do research should we give up should we not ask yeah. questions is this how we're supposed to be acting at this point within the evidence-based practice framework um, but I do believe with all my heart that the challenges that come with uh, being a BIPOC faculty, student, clinician, and the challenges that come from, you know, serving uh, BIPOC uh, families and children and adults with uh, communication disorders just makes us have more depth in understanding what communication disorders are, have more depth and breadth in understanding all of the assessment tools that are in our like uh, uh, tools that we can use to make a clinical decision that is uh, sound and uh, culturally appropriate. And I feel uh, we are becoming experts at a level that no one else is expected to have because we're put in a more challenging situations. And I think that makes us better clinicians. And uh, yeah, no, and not only like, you know, BIPOC, also white clinicians who are trying to do the right thing and to do the right way of, you know, assessing people that come from culturally diverse backgrounds. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you about the Lena Start program. Is it, um, do families sort of volunteer to sort of, join and I sort of got the sense that it was around um, making a making sure that they're continuing or encouraging them or helping them with continuing with their home language and their culture and that still being part of um, sort of who they are am I uh, along the right lines yeah. is that yeah, yeah, yeah. so the whole idea is to bring them together so that they can have, be more empowered to continue using their home language because everybody knows at this point that yeah. it is bilingualism is important. Like there is already a change in the public perception of bilingualism. And we see a lot of families who come from high socioeconomic status, you know, even seeking, seeking you know, babysitters to come and talk yeah. with their children, you know, in a specific language because, you know, there's an access and there's advantage of bilingualism. We see that. Uh, that there's more a, a, a more positive perception of bilingualism. We did move from the semilingualism uh, perception to more positive uh, understanding of uh, and perception of bilingualism. But at the same time, socially, we have this message that is sent that there's one language that is worthy more than the other. So if you are a monolingual English speaker, being bilingual, that's really cool. Like, you know, your queen, whatever, like her daughter, she became bilingual and it was all over the news and everybody was excited for her. Yeah, you, you know, this is cool because she already have the language of the power. But for children who are raised in minority or minoritized population, their first language is not the language of the power. So the whole perception of bilingualism becomes a little bit different here because you need English to succeed. That's the message that the society is giving for the children. And then as a parent, you start thinking, well, maybe I should stop talking with my kid because that kid needs English to succeed. That's the ticket for success. And then all of what we know about the advantages of bilingualism, wash away and we're talking about social constructs that are you know embedded in almost every practice in our tv shows in our radio discussions in in the way we react when somebody talks to us with an accent these are social constructs that are sent implicitly and intensively to the extent that it changes people's reactions unless we empower these people and give them the tools to be able to change that practice. And this is what we're trying to do with Alina. And I wanted it to do it with the best available ways. And Lena is the most evidence-based practice parenting uh, training program at this point. It does provide parents with data continuously 
It is very well designed. It's based on best practices in how to uh, teach adults. So we have a lot of videos that model for the parents how to use the different strategies that we're talking about, you know, which is, you know, to repeat and uh, to expand and recast all of, you know, the things that we do as speech pathologists in our like day to day work but we teach it to parents. We teach parents how to be in a way speech pathologist. So when they're um, yeah. And I see the results and I see parents empowered. Some of them, the empowerment mean, meant that, you know, one of them, she has a hijab and we were talking about going to the library and she said she doesn't feel comfortable going to the library mm-hmm. with the hijab because she's, you know, subject to a lot of harassment. And at one point, the families together they decided that they're going to have a day that they all go to the library together and I said that before in another meeting that I had that I wouldn't be surprised that in six months this parent is going to have a letter submitted to the library to ask them to bring Arabic books they are empowered to that extent Mm -hmm. that they nothing can stop them at this point they have each other and they have the knowledge and they have us anytime to come to us and we're building a community together. And I'm, I'm, I'm personally benefiting from this community as much as they are benefiting from me being in that community. Um, it's really hard to be feeling stranger all the time in the profession that is, you know, part of who you are. Like, you know, it's our identity. Being a speech yeah. pathologist is our identity. When I'm I have learning that more and more. <laughs> yes, you know, and you know, it, it comes with it's like wrong and good. Like, you know, I'm always observing everybody in my family and I have to comment and I cannot leave it to myself. And sometimes it comes with a lot of, you know, uh, consequences that you don't want to have. But, and, you know, I get a lot of calls from friends. There's always all these friends that want to consult with me. And sometimes like, you know, I really can't consult, like, you know, this is not my speciality, but no, they believe in me because, you know, they love Reem and they want Reem to tell them what to do. And, but it is, it is part of an identity. And that's what I started talking about that, you know, we shouldn't be bringing that transformative change just because we care, because it's our tribe. It's not a tribal thing. It's a professional thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm hoping that, you know, our professional associations start understanding. Yes, definitely. And I think we can talk forever. Yes. So much to talk I'm about. I'm loving talking to both of you. <laughs> but I'm just sort of conscious of time as well. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, but yeah, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much uh, for your time yeah, and all of your knowledge. Um, I feel like there's definitely areas that we can expand more on and um, if you'd be willing to come on again that would be amazing anytime anything you need I'm here for you and I enjoyed this as much as hopefully you enjoyed it yes it's been great yeah thank you very much it was so interesting talking to you thank you same here be sure to follow our Twitter and our Instagram SLT Timed at SLT Timed SLT Timed to keep up to date with new episode releases. And that's the SLT for today.